Coming up this time, stories from Cluffy's first steps into management. Just the sheer dedication, the way he threw himself at the job. Adapting to the unusual training facilities. The flat surface of the beach was actually not a bad place to train. The problem was the wind and the cold, but it was a good, good surface for five side games. And how the players adapted to their new boss. They'd never met somebody like Clough before and they've never met somebody like him since. I think that's a common thing with, with, with all the players that played under him. Well, he was a one-off. Marcus, good afternoon to you. It's not a very good afternoon, actually. It's pouring down, but it's nice to see you. I've got my grandchildren, I've got holidays, I've got lanes to walk down, I've got your lovely smiling face to look at on a Saturday. God forbid. You're listening to the Green Jumper podcast with myself, Marcus Alton, the editor of the tribute website, brianclough.com. And my guest today is the author of a book all about Cluffy's first managerial job in the Football League at Hartlepool's, as it was known then. We'll come on to the reason why it was plural in, in a little while. But first of all, welcome along to the author of the book, Alchemy, Chris Hull. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Marcus. And as a Hartlepool fan, this book must have been an absolute labour of love for you. Oh, definitely, yeah. So something that I've you know, had the, in the back of my mind for a long time and finally just saw an opportunity to sort of delve a little bit further into his time at um, Hartlepool's. And you just get you just get sucked in by the by the story, really, and it and it's Cluffy. So yeah. there's only one Cluffy, completely unique character, and found himself in a unique set of circumstances, both personal and football-wise, when it came to Hartlepool. And it was just just I mean, anything with Cluffy is a good story. I, I think the thing that drew that attracted me here was was it's a, a story that interested me. And I think a lot of people don't know too much about, apart from a few basic things about him learning to drive the bus, the team coach, yeah. things like that. And um, that's where he started his career. Although you ask a lot of people, and this is something I used to do as a fan, they say, oh, what football club do you support? Because I'm not from Harleypool, I'm from London. You can probably tell from my accent. Yes. I'll say, oh, I support the club where, where Brian Clough began his managerial career. And a lot of people sort of, think pause for a moment they say Derby Sunderland and only generally people from the northeast or people who know a lot about Cluffy will know that it was Hartlepool or Hartlepool's as it was named and of course when he he joined the club it was a huge challenge at the time because they were fighting re-election each season or more or less each season and and the state of the club was was terrible wasn't it a ramshackle stadium it really was starting at the bottom yeah, there's, there's an interesting parallel, really, a sort of triple parallel in terms of Clough personally, because his playing career had ended so tragically for him. You know, it's a personal tragedy. Mm. Um, you know, he was really at the height of his powers, 27 years old, often, always says that, 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 that sort of season and a half um, that he was at Sunderland were, were his happiest days, the happiest days of his playing career. And then really, in, in a moment, his career basically ended. You know, he played another three games a year and a half later, but that was the end of his playing career. You know, heartbroken. Yes. So down on, down, down on his luck. And if truth be told, you know, at home, 
with one child, another on the way at the point that he took over the job at Hartley Paul. So that, that was Nigel. Yes. Was born in Mar- Mar- March of 66. And, you know, football was all he knew. You know, football was all he was skilled in. Um, wasn't that, didn't, hadn't done that well academically at school. So football w- w- was his only profession. So he was down on his luck. Hartlepool's United, the football club, were down on, luck, on their luck because they'd applied for re-election to the Football League in five out of the previous six seasons. And to add to that, the town or the twin towns of Hartlepool and West Hartlepool were also down on their luck because industrially, economically, they were on the way down. You know, their, their, their peak really, well, I mean, you could go into it and say that their peak peak was probably pre-First World War, but there'd been a little bit of a boom after the Second World War. But by the early 60s, the town industrially was was on the way down. That was partly to do with the mining industry. Um, the last shipyard had closed in Hartlepool in 1962. So you got that triple down on their luck um, parallel going on. Yes. And, and, and football-wise, football's biggest challenge, you know, Hartlepool, without exaggeration, you could say at that point in the, in the 1960s, um, they were the worst team in the Football League based on the results in the previous six seasons. Yes, yeah. And the stadium itself was so dilapidated with, with le- le- leaking roofs. And one amusing thing I got from your book was fans or some fans writing to the local paper about flakes of rust falling on them when players hit wayward shots. And and there was this, one of them asked, could the manager either replace the corrugated sheeting or instruct his players to shoot more accurately? Interesting, that corrugated sheeting, as you mentioned it, that corrugated sheeting, this isn't in the book, actually. Um, I've read somewhere, and I'm pretty sure it's true just because of the shape of that roof, Mm. was made from um, old Anderson shelters. The stadium then, and it was still, you know, there there was one side or, or the main wooden stand, which was the only seated area in the, in the Victoria ground, which covered one third of the length of one touchline, uh, made of wood, leaky, as you said, um, a boardroom into which Clough placed buckets to catch the drips of rain, his office no bigger than his downstairs toilet at home. Yeah. Um the away dressing room, but not the home dressing room, the home dressing room. And this was still the case when I first went in 1979 was um, uh, basically two army barracks huts knocked together and turned into a home dressing room. Wow. Um, but like you say, the um, rink end roof was made from old Anderson shelter. So, so yeah. by the, by the 1960s, you know, 20 years after the end of the second world war, those Anderson shelter sheets had started to, um, well, 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 well rusted. Yes. And so, but Brian Clough said that, um, on a rainy day, the spectators would place themselves in parts of the terrace, um, where there was not a hole in the roof above. And you can, you can actually see in photo and video of the time, the holes in the roof. And cause it was, <laughs> Because it was curved at the front, that's where that's where I'm imagining that the ball used to, to hit. You know, when yes. I went over the crossbar, would hit that curved bit at the front yeah. and shower the fans with rust. Yeah, yeah. And and so that so they were getting quite browned off by it all. 
Yeah. And, and the team wasn't much better than the ones that he inherited. I know he said that looking back, he, he said that the team lacked so much talent that the only thing the midfield could create was confusion among themselves. So, so he had, he had a big job that. to do on the pitch, didn't he? He did have a big job to do on the pitch, but I think uh, Clough and Taylor were fortunate in a couple of uh, regards. And that was that just prior to them, um, Jeff Twentyman, who, you know, he only lasted four months in the job and two of those were, were, were close season months. So basically the first two months of the season, he had brought a couple of players who, who turned out to be extremely useful. And actually the, the manager prior to Jeff Twentyman, Alvin Williams, who scarped to South to manage South End, he had brought in the last, his last act as Hartlepool's manager was to bring in this chap called Ernie Fithian, who, you know, knew where the back of the net was. Yeah. Jeff Twentyman took over and he brought in Jimmy Mulvaney from Whitby Town. And in that second season that Clough and Taylor in charge, between them, they were a dynamic duo in terms of the number of goals they scored. So both of those players they inherited. So while Clough and Taylor said some quite unkind things about the squad, they, there were a few um, nuggets there that uh, did well for them. Which is a bit like what they went on to to manage at Derby and Forest. That you know, at uh, at the City Ground, there was John Robertson and Martin O'Neill already there, not really doing much at the time. But they they turned them into um, into world beaters. That's it. That's 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 what they were known for. That's what they were known for. They they, they started that at Hartlepool. You know, extracting the best or or being you know spotting in somebody talent that nobody else had mm. spotted or or putting them in a position on the pitch which was the case with John Robinson wasn't it where yeah. where they could f- fully exploit their their talents and um, jo- John McGovern was another one because obviously John McGovern was somebody um, that started under them at Hartlepool's but when they went to Derby you know they changed you know became a he was moved into the middle of the park whereas at Hartlepool's he was an inside right but quite a slow one. Now, now, getting players to eat the right food is not something that automatically comes to mind when you think of Cluffy's management style, but you came across quite a few stories of how players were actually put on diets to make sure they, they weren't overweight. And I think one of them you spoke to was was Ken Simpkins, the goalkeeper. That's right, Ken Simpkins. I mean, in a sense, I feel a little bit bad about continually mentioning his weight, but the reason I do that... Mm is because whenever Ken Simpkins' name appeared in the local newspaper, which at the time was called the Northern Daily Mail, or it's Saturday evening edition, the Football Mail, mm. um, if it wasn't about mentioning action on the pitch, it was always about Ken Simpkins in his, in his fight, you know, his fight against the flab and um, taking off weight, then putting it back on again. Yeah. And um, after they left, actually he had a plastic suit so that sort of made of bin bags, one of the other players told me, uh. so that he sweat inside the suit but the the unfortunate thing is that their local training facility which wasn't a training ground but the local beach or or, or number of local beaches was, was um especially in the winter uh, as Clough famously said the coldest place on earth so not the best place in the world to get sweat on <laughs> no not indeed and and they did have to uh, train on the beach didn't they that's it. If, if the pitch was a little bit soft, you know, which was, of course, the case for much of the season, then it was the beach. The flat surface of the beach was actually not a bad place to train. The problem was the wind and the cold, but it was a good good surface for five side games, the players told me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And just coming back to, to Ken Simpkins, the, the, the goalkeeper, he, he did successfully yeah. lose weight, didn't he? At one point, he was called in every other day to, to be weighed on the scales, I think, which, which sounds quite, you know, draconian, really. Yeah, we see, like I say, it's quite a humorous story in a way, mm. um, you know, w- without wanting to be sizist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah. but but, I mean, the, the the slightly comical thing was that they literally had the um, heaviest goalkeeper in the Football League and also the shortest in Les Green. And of course, it all it all came down to, to fitness, really, and and making sure that they were um, as fit as they possibly could be. Because I, th- I think he said, you know, fitness was crucial in, in certainly in the final fifteen minutes of a match. So um, it, it was all well intended at, at the time. Um, another thing I noticed, uh, and it comes into that alchemy theme of building a great team spirit which is what they went on to do again at Derby and, and Nottingham Forest and and I noticed yeah. in your book Jimmy Mulvaney quoted as saying he'd run through fire for Brian Clough which, which is something that, a lot of players uh, have said it. since that's it I think I think you you, you know I mentioned John McGovern John, John McGovern is quoted as saying he would have was it walk across the Sahara for him yeah. other players run through a brick wall yes yeah, he just it was that just that man management that Clough had. You know, he was able to extract the best out of individual players and provoke them in the right places and at the right time to g them up and basically extract their best and turn you know the the the, the theme of, of of alchemy both on a on a club level, team level, and on an individual level. You know, turning a base metal into gold or into silverware, literally bringing silverware to, to, to Derby and Nottingham Forest, you know, two unfashionable lower second division teams when they took over, turning them into trophy winners. Mm. Bringing the European Cup twice to Nottingham is just an amazing feat. You know? Yeah. It's certainly great hearing and, and reading the stories of, uh, of former players, you know, back in the 60s. And I remember... Um, Terry Bell, who's sadly no longer with us, um, a Hartlepool player, t- told me he he accidentally poured a bucket of water over Cluffy uh, when a prank went wrong, uh, and that's in, in one of my books. But you've spoken to quite a few of the former players there, and um, yeah, yeah. It, it must have been very special for you to to hear their memories directly. Are there any that that, that stand out for you? Um, well, I, the common theme among them was that in a sense, there was no actual surprise when it came to Clough at Hartlepool's in terms of he was the same player at Hartlepool's that they later saw on the telly. Yeah. And, you know, in charge of Derby uh, and Nottingham Forest, you know, it it was the same Clough, you know, a younger version of him. The other, the other thing was that, you know, together, from the very beginning, you know, that when they walked into the club and obviously Taylor had, had managed for a few years at non-league Burton Albion, whereas with Clough, it was his first managerial job. Um, they knew what they were doing. Do you know what I mean? They didn't yes. look like, they didn't feel like novices to them. They knew exactly what they do. They had a plan. They had a strategy. And, you know, their their, their talents really dovetailed in, 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 in a good way. But it was only really... Um, when they got to the end of that first season, because they, you know, they took over th- basically a third of the way into the 65-66 season with Hartlepool's second bottom, managed just 
for the team to escape re-election. It was only during that first summer, the summer of 66, obviously, the year that England won the World Cup, they were able to, 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 to mould the team into something approaching a Clough and Taylor team. And, you know, they had an outside... Well, at one point, they were, you know, they were in the top four a couple of points during that season. Only through lack of money... Yes, Really, yes. or and according to Taylor, one particular player that they tried to recruit in summer '66 and, and didn't manage to, only because of that, did they finish eighth and not in the top four? You know, and they, they and and obviously the, the the manager that followed them when they when they went to Derby in summer '67, Angus McLean inherited a very good team, and you know, only thanks to what he'd inherited from Clough and Taylor was, I mean, he was no fool. But um, you know, he would he never got promotion if he hadn't inherited such a decent squad from Clough Taylor. They laid the foundations really, and to finish That's eighth, it. to finish eighth with what they'd got was was quite I an mean, achievement, you, really. Yeah, you, 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 you could almost argue, Marcus, that given their recent history prior to them taking over, mm. that getting Hartlepool's up to eighth place was almost as much as an achievement yeah. as winning the league championship at Derby and then on the first and two European Cups. You know, it was an, an achievement in itself. If you just look at the, the history of Hartlepool's prior to that, you know, they were not doing well. Yeah, no, Not no. doing well no. at all. In fact, in the bottom two, from the 59-60 season until the 63-64 season, they finished in the bottom two for five seasons. Right? And with that lack of resources, lack of money, you've mentioned the photo of Cluffy at the uh, wheel of the, the, the team coach, although I don't think he actually yeah. drove it himself no. in the end. But no. he, 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 no. Be- he became a fundraise- a one-man fundraising machine, didn't he, really, when they were having to, to get local organisations to help... Um, donate money just the sheer you know the dedication the way he threw himself at the job was was something that 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 impresses me in terms of yeah he was managing the football team which was a a tough challenge in itself um but when it came to that second season you know he was working 18 hour days um he was hardly seeing his children um his wife said Quote the saying, you know, how many how many meals she threw away because he he would only get get home for the for the late night television epilogue. Yes, he was a manager. He was on the training pitch, which was the local beach. He was, and then from November '66 onwards, when the uh, chairman uh, resigned for the umpteenth time, and um, the the rest of the board called his bluff and accepted his resignation. The, the the club was in se- at serious risk of going out of business, and Clough literally went round every single working man's club in 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 the Hartley Pools, um, and a lot of pubs as well. Fundraising, so he was a sort of manager by day, a fundraiser by night, as well as drumming up great publicity with the local paper. For example, that that picture of him, as you said, learning to drive the the team coach. Um, in the summer of 66, there's a picture in my book of him with a hammer, dressed in overalls with a hammer in his hand, got involved <laughs> in repairing the stands and painting the stands. And a man of all uh, of all the talents, really, really throwing himself at the job. You know, by hook or by crook, he was going to make it work. And with all that, that there was often turmoil behind the scenes, as you yeah. explain it in the book. He certainly had a bumpy journey with the, with the chairman, Ernie Ord, didn't he? That's right. That's right. I think you can definitely draw parallels between Ernie Ord at Hartlepool's and Sam Longson at Derby County. 
yeah. in terms of the type of men they were. They were, you know, self-made men, self-made millionaires. Mm -hmm. Both drove a Rolls Royce and they both had an enormous falling out with, with Cluffy, you know, both being headstrong <laughs> people, you know, Clough wasn't one to mince his words and not to call a, a spade a, a garden digging implement. And, and the same went for the chairman, you know, so, yes, yes. so yeah, the, the first in a, in a long line of um, disagreements with the board. Yes. But he did end up having a, a good relationship with the, um, the chairman who took over from Ernie or John, John Curry. Um, Curry, and I think that's I think in in hindsight he said well he didn't interfere with my job you know he let me get on with it and um, I thought what was really nice that uh, you include is that um, Clough and Taylor presented him with a a farewell gift when they went to Derby that's it that's it they gave, gave him a lighter with an inscription saying we'll, ne we'll never work for a better, better football manager well, one one of the people I managed to catch up with with a bit of detective work was John Curry's son, actually. Oh yeah, who's John Curry Jr., who's who's still with us and uh, living in Canada. So I had a few good chats with John about his oh. his dad, and you know, he's interested in the car he drove. And um, but no, it's, it was it's actually quite sad when you get to the end of that that second season, which mm. was the only full season they're in charge. Trying to imagine that phone call that Clough made to John Curry to say, "Look, um, will you sorry, but I'm leaving." Mm. Yes, <laughs> it's after like, all that, yeah. you know, after all the, the those years of of um, struggle on the pitch, and then John Curry takes over from Ernie Ord. Clough does all that fundraising; they get them up to eighth. Real ambition to get promotion that next season, which of course they subsequently did, subsequently did under a different manager, and then Derby come calling, mm. and um, Clough and Taylor thresh it out in the snooker room of a hotel in Scarborough, and Taylor manages to persuade Clough because Clough was resistant to leaving. That's quite clear. Yeah, Taylor couldn't get out of Hartlepool's quick enough. Down to Derby, which is obviously his neck of the woods, the East Midlands, coming coming from nothing. Mm. But Clough, Clough had a little bit more of an attachment. Obviously, he's from the northeast himself, and had been round to all these working men's clubs, extracting money from you know working class folk. And you can imagine some of the conversations that, yeah. that, that, that no, why 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 should I give money to to this club? You know, you could be you're here today, could be gone tomorrow. They'll only sink back to the bottom of the football league, but managed to extract money. Managed to keep the club going and then it didn't sit right with him I'm, le I'm, I'm leaving I think his attitude was let's get the job finished let's get promotion and then we'll leave but Taylor said no we might not get another opportunity like this it's Derby County team of former glories let's go now we're leaving Hartlepool's in a better shape than we found it we might regret it if we don't take this opportunity and uh, I don't think it took him long to persuade Clough but he was he was resistant initially to leaving. Was Taylor can get out fast enough? Yeah, yeah. Well, g give him credit. Ernie Ord w w was right, really, because at one stage he's praising Clough as as the best manager around and and saying he's so good he'll soon be off to another club. So the writing That's was on it. the wall, I guess, um, to a certain That's... extent. But uh, another yeah. thing I I liked when I read it was. Um, Although they went to Derby, Cluffy always had a soft spot for Hartlepool. Uh, by then, that the two boroughs were were united, so it was Hartlepool instead of Hartlepools. And and when the club was again in dire straits, he bought a a player from them, even though he didn't need them. 
does yeah i think that was repaying a favor to john curry mm. i think it was um a, a tax demand something like that, something that had to be paid very quickly yeah and curry ran Clough and said you know can, can, we, can you help me out here um by one of our players and, and the player that they bought was tony perry and that money saved the club from extinction from from, from going bankrupt yeah, which is amazing. And I, I think Tony Parry was was one of the first, or if not the first, signing they'd made at Hartlepool's. So the, there was a sort of uh, the full circle being made there. What's your lasting memory of, of Clough from, from all the work that you've done on the book? Ooh, just how unique, just, you know, what a one-off character he was. You know, but this is something else that the players um, said to me, actually. You know, general message was they'd never met somebody like Clough before and they've never met somebody like him since. So that, I think that's a common thing with, with, with all the players that played under him. Yes. He, he, was, he was a one-off. He was a one-off. And you never knew what you were going to get, you know, like... John, John Motson has said that in his um, Great Lives uh, BBC4 yeah. episode where, you know, he chose Brian Clough as, as the great life to study. You never knew on a, mat, or on a match or even any other day what Clough you were going to get. He was just so unpredictable. Exactly. Only one Cluffy. Well, there are details of the book Alchemy on the show notes for this episode and on the Brian Clough Tribute website. But uh, for now, Chris Hull, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Marcus. And once again, thanks to you for listening. It's wonderful to see the podcast downloaded in so many countries. Don't forget, there are more Cluffy stories on brianclough.com, where you can also buy books and souvenirs supporting good causes. I hope you can join me next time, when we'll share more memories of the great man in the green jumper.